Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Yeah, of democracy, very good. <laughs> G'day and welcome to Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations. Now, if you rank the issues of major importance to Australia and the world in the 21st century, it'd be pretty hard to go past the pandemic. That's understandable because this is a genuine global emergency with now over 4 million lives lost. And of course, in Australia at present, we're seeing the emergence of another wave a long-predicted winter return of the virus, but this time in more virulent Delta form. This has exposed the Morrison government's rather cavalier approach through the middle of 2020 as it received praise for successful suppression of the virus, overwhelmingly the achievement of the states, by the way. This week's revelations that Kevin Rudd made overtures to the global head of Pfizer are another embarrassment for the government which insists Rudd's efforts had no impact on the company's decision to accelerate the delivery of Pfizer from later this month. Health Minister Greg Hunt says it was the government's own overtures that secured the step-up, which, whether true or not, amounts to an admission that the original timetable agreed on was too slow. Who knew? Apart from everyone, that is. Anyway, there are two other issues beyond the pandemic, and of course we hope the pandemic will be managed before too long, and they are climate change and the rise of China. Unfortunately, neither of these is likely to go away anytime soon, and it's to the latter that we direct our attention today. Hugh White is Emeritus Professor of Strategic Studies at the Australian National University, as well as being a former Deputy Secretary of the Department of Defence, and he wrote the Defence White Paper 2000. I like the way, Hugh, that you actually got your name in the title. <laughs> yes, good bit of branding, that. <laughs> it is. So welcome back to Democracy Sausage. You've nice been on to be here with before. You. Let's let's go to this question of China and start broadly. How serious is the situation that Australia finds itself in with China, our largest trading partner and essentially our get out of jail card really during the GFC and even now I guess given uh, China's voracious appetite for our iron ore and and some other things, you know, it's uh, certainly been a a key part of our economic resilience in recent global crises, and yet we see the bilateral relationship really really in a very poor state. Yeah, well, Mark, I think it is very serious indeed, and it's very serious at two levels. The first is the level you kind of alluded to in your question, and that is that you know Australia has for, what, 25, 30 years, I guess, seen China, I think correctly seen China, as the principal locomotive of our economic growth. And that has depended on there being, a, you know, a sort of a workable diplomatic relationship with China. We never believed we had to get on with China on every issue, but there had to be a basic level of acceptance. And although one can have an interesting debate about whose fault it is, there's no doubt that that has disappeared. And that means not just uh, that we've lost a whole lot of economic opportunities 
so far, you know, particular commodities, uh, wine, barley, so on. But also, and I think more seriously, it casts real doubt on the extent to which we're going to have economic opportunities in China in future. Mm. And the key thing economically, from my perspective, is not that we've lost, you know, some billions of dollars a year worth of export markets that we used to have. It's that all of those markets that we thought we might be able to build in the decades ahead and which were so deeply embedded in our judgments about what kind of economic growth we were going to manage over the decades ahead we must now be very sceptical about our chances of realising that unless and until something fundamentally changes in the relationship. So that is in itself a very serious thing. Mm. But that's not all because I do also think it's important to recognise that the the economic problems, the trade embargoes and so on, the diplomatic imbroglio that we've fallen into over the last, uh, well, 18 months really with China is itself a symptom of something much, much bigger and that is China's ambitions to become the dominant power in East Asia and our very deep and visceral sense that that's something we cannot accept. And, you know, if we ask fundamentally, why are we in this predicament, uh, you know, with the, with, the, with the trade restrictions and so on that the Chinese have put on us, it's not just or primarily that Scott Morrison has been pretty undiplomatic in his dealings with China, though he has. It's that, you know, what underlies that fundamentally is that Australia wants America to remain the dominant power mm. in East Asia and the Chinese want to take America's place. It's as fundamental as that. Now, we have no model, just as we have no model for our economic future without the economic opportunities that China is the world's biggest economy and fastest growing big economies would appear to offer us. But we have no model of our strategic future in an Asia in which America is not the dominant power and therefore China's rise and China's ambitions fundamentally threaten things that are really important to us. And I don't think as a country we've really begun to think through how we manage either of those great challenges. Yes. Now, I want to come back to some of those issues like, uh, you know, the the uh, US dominance and uh, the China's ambition to replace it and and where Australia sits. And, you know, there's such so many big issues there. Mm. But just sticking with the bilateral relationship for a moment, should we be surprised that I mean, because you, you mentioned diplomacy, and obviously mm. there's been some pretty cumbersome diplomacy, or or an absence of it, almost absence of diplomacy in in some of the communications going both ways. Yeah. But how much should we really be surprised that we get the kinds of punishments that we've seen from Beijing, when in fact it, it's really just the external version of how it behaves internally, which is to say it's an autocratic state. It doesn't believe in individual rights. It believes in the primacy of the party in the primacy of the state itself it's authoritarian it's intolerant uh, you know it has some it has some virtues but it has many many mm. vices yeah. uh, according to our yeah. our values and and it is seeking to behave towards us as it does behave towards say internal dissenters. citizens yeah look i think that that is a that is a significant a significant part of it one of the reasons why we and for that matter a lot of other countries are anxious about the idea of living in an Asia in which China becomes much more influential, living in a world in which Mm. China becomes much more influential, is that when you look at exactly as you say, if you look at the way the Chinese Communist Party conducts itself to its own citizens, it's impossible not to draw a, you know, an extrapolation to the way in which it's going to treat us. So I, I think that is a significant point. But I'd also make two other points. The first is that we don't want to over romanticize the way in which any great power treats other yeah. countries that get in their way. Now, I'm not, you know, I, I don't want to start sounding like I'm doing a paid political advertisement for the Chinese Communist Party, but but the fact is that all great powers are, pr- are pretty ruthless in trying to get what they want. And, you know, if we were in Iran, for example, we would take the view that the United States was extraordinarily ruthless in trying to get what it wanted. Now, you might say, well, fair enough, because the Iranians have done some pretty terrible things. But still, we just need to recognise that what makes us worry about China as a great power in our region, as the, potentially the dominant power in our region, is not just that it's communist. It's that it's likely to behave the way any other great power behaves, and it's not our mate. What, what, what makes Australia's perspectives on these things a little bit unusual and a little bit sort of optimistic, is that for all of our career since, all of our national life since European settlement, the strongest power in our world has either been Britain or America. And they've behaved very brutally towards lots of other countries, but they've never behaved brutally towards us because they're our mates. Now, China, whatever else it is, not going to be our mate. 
So I, I do think that's a very significant factor. The other point is that the, the fact that we've got problems with China is not just because Scott Morrison said some impolite things to them. And the Chinese are perfectly capable of being very subtle and quite gentle diplomats when they want to be. I mean, they treated Australia with kid gloves for a long time. If you think back, for example, after Barack Obama came to Canberra and announced the pivot, uh, Julia Gillard and he announced the deployment of US Marines to Darwin, there was a bit of a sense of, well, what are the Chinese going to say about that? But in fact, the Chinese went, okay. So they just, you know, they were very gentle about that. There was no doubt that they were not, they didn't like it, but they decided the best approach then was not to push us too hard and, you know, just to sort of schmooze their way through. And I think the government, Australian government, also actually treated China quite carefully on that. And so um, I don't think we should say that the, the way the Chinese are treating us at the moment diplomatically, again, is just because they're a Communist Party, very authoritarian party. They can be gentle diplomatically if they want to. They've chosen not to be. And so we've got to ask ourselves, what's changed in Beijing's view of us that has made them treat us so differently? And what do you think that is? Well, I, I, I'm not completely sure, but I do think that as the strategic rivalry between America and China has hotted up, and it's worth remembering that it was only at the end, the very end of 2017, so still only a handful of years ago, that America formally declared China a strategic rival. And under the Trump administration, and then clearly under the Biden administration, that sense of the rivalry between America and China being really stark and strategic and zero sum has grown stronger and stronger. And so I think the Chinese decided that they needed to push back harder against the United States. And I do think we're being made an example of. I think what they're saying to other countries in Asia is as the, when the United States comes knocking and asks you to support them more strongly against us, don't imagine it's not going to cost you anything. And if you want to see what it costs you, look at what we've done to Australia. One of the reasons why I'm pessimistic about our chances of resolving our problems with China is not just that they do, as I said before, in the end go to these very deep questions of strategic order. It's that the Chinese are actually, I think, I think the Chinese are quite happy with what they've achieved. They don't really want us to cave in. I don't think they expect us to cave in. I think they just expect us to suffer and for others to observe our suffering. And in that respect, I'm not sure they've done too badly. Uh, I don't see an awful lot of other countries in the in the East Asian region flocking to follow Australia's example. No, in fact, there's there's really not been any particularly structural cost to China for this. I mean, there's been a bit of rhetorical pushback from France recently. I noticed. Uh, well, yes, but to France is a long way away. Yeah. Um, you know, the era when France and Britain, for that matter, had a big say in what happens in the Western Pacific disappeared approximately <laughs> December the seventh, nineteen forty one. And, uh, and and that's not coming back. No. no, I mean, if you look at, you know, I think if you if you want to, you know, Asian political leaders, Asian countries don't talk much about this stuff, talk less about it than we do, and there's a hint there. But if you want to, if you want to get, get take the temperature of the way our Asian neighbours are seeing this issue, look at what Lee Shenlong, the Prime Minister of Singapore, is saying. Look what he said when he stood up next to Morrison when Morrison was stopped off in Singapore on his way to the G7 in Cornwall or what or what he said. He, uh, Lee Shenlong had a big article in Foreign Affairs, magazine, Foreign Affairs article uh, magazine uh, in June last year, he made a big speech at the Shangri-La Dialogue the, 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 the June before that. Very consistent message in all of these speeches. What he was saying to the United States is, we don't want a new Cold War in Asia. You are going to have to learn to live with China's power. We don't want China to dominate the region, but we're not going to support you in a new Cold War. You have to learn to live with the Chinese and make space for them. Now, that's a very different message from what Australia is conveying. And I think it's you know a reflection, very pragmatic reflection, as you'd expect from Singapore, of a country that has welcomed America's presence, but doesn't believe that standing up to China the way we're trying to stand up to China is going to work and does believe it's going to cost them a lot. And what the Chinese have done to us over the last 12 months or more has reinforced that sense. And to that extent, I think the Chinese, contrary to what a lot of people here are saying, that the Chinese must feel rueful at, uh, that their strategy hasn't worked because we haven't changed our mind. I don't think that's what they're after. I think, I think for, for them, the strategy has worked. They've, 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 uh, uh, you know, what's the phrase? Kill the fox to frighten the chickens. No, it might be mm. the other way around, but mm. you know, it's, uh, mm. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, well, People often think that the Chinese must be losing ground politically or diplomatically because because they make people frightened. Oh, no. 
Mm. No, that's what they want. They've read Machiavelli. They'd yeah. rather be feared than loved. Yeah, and they think it's more likely, more achievable. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you and, know, and and what can we take from Japan? And 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 I guess New Zealand comes into this as well because you know, we're, yeah, uh, these are close allies of mm. Australia, and of course, Japan being part of the Quad, mm. which you know we can come to mm. as well, which is a, a key irritant now. But both of these countries have, I guess, you might call structurally similar positions to ours. Similar, not yeah. identical, but quite different. Rhetorical yeah, framing of no, it. No, look, that's that that that's quite right. They're both very interesting cases. I mean, New Zealand's so interesting because, so many ways, they're not like us. Yeah, and Australians very readily just assume that you know we're really just identical. In fact, Australia and New Zealand have, considering how similar we are in so many dimensions of our national life, uh, has a history of surprisingly different strategic perspectives from ours. For example, you know the whole nuclear-powered warships yeah. visit story back in the 1980s, which was, you know, pretty seismic in its time and showed that New Zealanders just took a different perspective. Look, I think in New Zealand's case that they are they are less wedded to the idea that American power is the only possible basis for stable order and they're, I think, more conscious than we are that their economic future depends on China because they're less inclined to take it for granted. One of the reasons is, you know, Australia has... Since you know, both Australia and New Zealand threatened to fall into a big hole um, when England, Britain entered the European Union co- common market, as it then was back in the nineteen sixties, early seventies, and Australia was at, came out of bounced out of that hole because we had all this iron ore to sell, and New Zealand didn't. So New Zealand's economy economic story has been much tougher than ours for the last few decades. And we continue to think that whatever else happens, we'll just keep on selling mountains of iron ore to the Chinese and how much can go wrong. And you can see the way in which a lot of Australian commentary about the difficulties with China in the last 12 months or so have been framed around the idea that, uh, you know, whatever happens, the Chinese have to buy our iron ore. So, and when iron ore is 200 bucks a tonne, there's a limit to how much damage they can do to us. The New Zealanders are not nearly that complacent. And I think they're much more conscious about the point of the point we were discussing before about the future of future economic opportunities in China to their economic trajectory. So on the one hand, they're they're, they're less economically complacent. On the other hand, they're they're less strategically committed to the idea of the United States as the only possible guarantor. So they're, you know, I think they are taking a more open-minded approach. Japan is fascinating because, of course, Japan really does feel threatened by China. And we all know both the geographical and the historical framing mm. for that. But at the same time, and of course, Japan is a very close ally of the United States, has ever since 1945 absolutely depended on the United States for their security. And so the anxieties we feel about China and the sense of dependence we have on the United States is in some ways in Japan amplified 50 times. But on the other hand, Japan's relationship with the United States has got a much more complex and ambivalent historical foundation. I mean, we just love America because they've always been there for us sort of stuff. At least that's the story we tell ourselves. It's not quite that simple. But no one in Japan thinking about the US alliance forgets the firebombing of Tokyo or Hiroshima and Nagasaki mm, mm. or the occupation. And nor do they forget China's own uh, Japan's own time as a great power in Asia. And they're very conscious of the fact that in the long run, they have to get on with China, and China's always been there, and America's only been there for a hundred years, and so the need to in Japan to both nurture and protect the U.S. alliance as much as possible because they're so scared of China, but also to find a way to manage relations with China. Ultimately, their security, in a way, I mean, the geography isn't going to change. They've got no. they've got China very close yeah. to them physically, and that's going to be the case. Forever. Forever. Uh, alliances come and go. That's um, right. You know, big, great powers can can wane and so yeah. forth, and we see, you know, arguably see that in process right at the moment. And so their longer-term security has to be with China as well as- That's right. Uh, as, well, as well as against it, in a sense. That is exactly right. In the long run, they have no alternative but to find a way to get on with China because in the long run, they can't depend on the United States the way they have in the past. And there's a kind of, there's a really, you know, often geopolitics seems very complex, but sometimes what the heart of it, something very simple. Mm. And there's something very simple at the heart of Japan's geopolitical, geostrategic dilemma. The stronger China becomes, the more threatening it is to Japan, and the more costly it is for the United States to protect Japan from China. And therefore, as China becomes stronger, Japan is both more threatened and less able to depend on the United States. So it's more important for it to be able to stand up for itself 
and more important for it to be able to manage relations with China. And, and you can see that happening right now because on the one hand, as you say, Japan's a member of the Quad. Uh, Prime Minister Suga was the first foreign leader to turn up at the White House under the Biden administration, all of that. On the other hand, the, in Tokyo right now, they're working like mad to, 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 to plan and execute a formal state visit to Tokyo by Xi Jinping. Mm. Now, if you, want a, if you want an index of how different Japan's approach to China is from Australia's, notwithstanding the fact that we're both very worried about to China and we're both uh, strong allies of the United States, the Japanese really want to keep the relationship with, with, uh, with China workable. And it would also be true to say, would it not, that the more febrile and competitive the relationship is between the two great powers between China and the United States, the more difficult it is for Japan, yes, because it can't physically step away from the, right. you know from being no. the sort of meat in the no. sandwich. There, no, that is that is exactly right. You know the the sort of simple minded model that I think a lot of people in Washington and Canberra have is that the more scary China becomes, the more scared that Japan comes, and the closer it clings to the United States, and so the stronger the United States becomes. But in fact, th- that's not what's happening. The more scary uh, China becomes the more the Japanese think, whoa, we can't afford to alienate these guys. So they are trying to walk both sides of the street, in a sense, as as we were for a long time, that is, cling to the United States without offending China. Now, during the last 18 months or so, Australia sort of thrown that model overboard and decided yeah, completely to, with the United States. Yeah, because we used to talk, and I've heard <coughs> you speak on this before, this this idea about when, when and whether we have to choose. That's right. And- it feels like we've chosen. Yes, that, no, that's yeah. right. For, for a long time, really right back to John Howard's day, you know, the great Australian mantra was we don't have to choose between America and China. We don't have to choose between our history and our geography. And, you know, that's always a very attractive idea because you don't want to make choices you don't have to make. Uh, but that, that was – and, you know, Scott Morrison was still saying we don't have to choose as late as 2019. Right. And, you know, and every Australian Prime Minister – and for that matter, every Australian leader of the opposition, going all the way back to Julia Gillard in 2010, I think it was, have used that exact form of words. We don't have to choose between America and China. And, you know, you ask yourself, well, I mean, obviously, we don't want to choose between America and China, but, you know, there's more to policy than expressing vain hopes. Yeah. And and when when Australian political leaders kept on saying, we don't have to choose, what they were, what they were really saying was, you know, we somehow think this whole problem is going to go away. We somehow think that China can rise the way it has, and America can continue to remain the dominant power in Asia, and the two won't 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 compete. Well, that always just seemed to me to be a, a complete fantasy. Mm. And uh, you know, it was always the case that we were going to be compelled, not necessarily to make the binary choice, but either you side with America and abandon China, or vice versa, but have to make a whole lot of complex choices about how you position yourself in between them. Now, exactly as you say, what happened sometime in March or April last year was that Scott Morrison decided that he was just going to choose and boom, and and and, and here we are. And as I say, I think that's in a sense why the Chinese have turned the knob on us so hard after having well, dealt with us so gently for so long. It was the sense that Australia had stopped trying to 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 balance the US yeah. and China, but it simply said we're going to back the United States. And the, the because, China, because so even that attempt, even that trying, difficult though it may have been and lacking in credibility though it some, some, sometimes may have appeared, was a recognition of the fact that we had a very strong relationship with China and sort of multiple levels. And, and you've got to respect that. And huge interest. That, that, that's exactly right. And, and, um, you know, I, I don't want to sound like I'm justifying Chinese Chinese policy. I think they're behaved like complete bastards. But um, but uh, th- that's exactly what they told us. You know, they said if if you know if you think you can treat us like us like that mm. and still get all the benefits you want from our rise, you're, you're kidding yourself. Yeah. And um, and that th- that's and you know that's the contrast. If you go all the way back in 2003, uh, John Howard hosted. On consecutive days, formal state visits by Hu Jintao, then President of China, and George W. Bush. They both, on consecutive days, addressed joint sittings of the Houses of Parliament. Mm, I was there. And uh, it was the most, I mean, you must remember, it was the most remarkable piece of theatre. And the weird thing was it was George Bush who copped the demonstration 
outside rather than Hu Jintao by people who were saying, <laughs> you know, you've got to support democracy. Well, George Bush had his, had his shortcomings as a president. I think we could all agree on that. But but what Howard did then was to very dramatically and quite artfully mm. demonstrate that, you know, this was the year of Iraq. No one, no one was a stronger ally of the United States than John Howard, but he was demonstrating to everyone, including to the Chinese, how important we see this relationship. And he, 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 in his speech welcoming Hu Jintao, he said something like, "You know, we, we, we know there are issues upon which you and we are going to differ, and we know there are issues upon which we, you and the United States will differ, and it will be Australia's role always to represent to both you and the United States how important it is that you put those differences to one side and get along. Let's focus on the things that unite us, not the things that divide us, very John Howard line. Mm. Now, that was the perfect articulation of the kind of position that a country like Japan now adopts. It's a perfect articulation of the position that Australia abandoned for some reason uh, a couple of uh, you know, 18 months ago. And, you know, the question we've got to ask ourselves is, well, wh where do we think that's going to end? You know, wh wh what's what's the end point of the – what's the strategy and, and and what's the strategy aimed aiming to achieve? It's such a good question because China's not going to go away. And no, I know that sounds right. like a really prosaic <laughs> statement, but – but it's so but fundamental no, well, but, to all this. But, but, but actually, actually, Mark, you know, you can sort of turn that argument on its head and say, what must these guys think if they think what they're doing now? I mean, the Australian government, mm. if they think that alienating China the way they're doing it is a good strategy. Well, they must think that China is going to go away. In other words, they must think that China is going to be persuaded to back off its challenge to US power and somehow accept America is the dominant power in Asia, except America is the dominant power globally, even as China's economy grows to overtake the Americans and indeed, to a, according to government's own estimates, significant to a significant degree surpass it. And you might say, well, how could they possibly expect that? Well, the point is, that's what they think in Washington. Right. That, you know, the, the, the <laughs> rationale for America's policy, as I, as I see it, is that they somehow think that if they just push hard enough, the Chinese will decide that this is all a big mistake and they're going to give it away. Well, they've met very different Chinese from the ones I've met, mm. if that's what and, they and think. And the ones we're all seeing. Let's take a quick break there and come back and continue this in a moment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, we were talking about the critical issue at the heart of all of this, the rise of China and the competition between the US and China. Malcolm Turnbull and many others have referred to the Thucydides trap, the, the, the notion that conflict is inevitable, really, as one power rises to, uh, to take on another and perhaps to replace it as the dominant power. Is that still the inevitable in your view? Is that, or is there a way that we can that this can be worked out? No, look, it's a it's a really important question. Uh, I mean, just to defend poor old Thucydides, I, I, I think I think the uh, the scholars would argue that he didn't really use the word he used in Greek when he said it was the rise of Athens' power and the fear this generated in Sparta made war inevitable. It didn't actually mean inevitable. It made meant something like. Very bloody likely, <laughs> and that's a significant difference. Yeah. Inevitable is a very big word in human affairs. Yeah, I don't think a war between the US and China is inevitable. Is that a way of saying you, you don't think that uh, that war with uh, like an invasion of 
Taiwan is is inevitable, and oh, that, or, or are you, or are oh, no, you saying that I, no, I, the US might not step in? No, that's exactly that's yeah. it. Well, put it this way: the, the, the war can always be avoided by one side or the other giving up, right? And that's actually, if you look back through history, at the other examples that people cite of the Thucydides trap at work: rising power meets an established power. Uh, the time when when they didn't go to war was the time when the the, the established power said to the rising power, "Oh, okay." Okay, I'll step back and give you some space, and that's a that's a clear possibility. I mean, so that, that's a kind of a sphere of influence argument, isn't it? Really, or at least it fits into that frame well, where, where, where exa- the exactly. world would make a pragmatic decision. The US would make a pragmatic decision that, although it doesn't like it, although it's been a long term friend and and supporter of Taiwan as as Australia has, although perhaps less sort of officially, if it did happen that a strategic pragmatic decision is taken to accept it, that is, as you, going back to your original point. That is what great powers do. They they establish right. spheres of influence. Yeah. They 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 secure their peripheries, yeah. uh, and they they need living space. If I can use that, yeah, rather. use that phrase. Yes. Now look, that is exactly right. And you know, just to be just to make the point a little bit more harshly, that's exactly what America has done in the Western Hemisphere since eighteen twenty four under of the course. Monroe Doctrine. You know, hands off. This is our part of the world. Mm. No other. Power from outside the Western Hemisphere will have any kind of strategic role in this part of the world. We are in charge. And if you're Mexico or Canada, uh, let alone Cuba or Venezuela, you might think that that's a pretty rough kind of idea, but it's worked in the end and it certainly worked for America. And one option- Justified Hawaii even. Well, exactly, yes. And one option for, for the United States and the way in which war could be avoided- is the United States says, okay, well, we've been the dominant power in the Western Pacific for a long time. It's worked well for us. It's worked well for the Western Pacific, but things have changed now. We're going to step back. And it could either be stepped back completely and leave the, you know, leave the East Asia and the Western Pacific to China or step back partially and say, okay, we'll have some sort of power sharing arrangement. We're going to be less influential. You're going to be more influential, but we'll still be here to play some kind of role. Now, I've long argued that that second option would be a better, the best outcome for Australia. I mean, the best outcome would be American primacy continuing, but if you don't think that's possible, and I don't think it is in view of China's power and ambition, then America only stepping halfway back would be much better. It would be very hard to do. You'd have to negotiate some kind of power-sharing arrangement. It would you know, involve really changing the architecture, the sort of uh, – the. Multilateral architecture oh, com- around the world, com- it? completely, so, completely, so yeah. Things like the World Trade Organization, uh, the way that Security Council works, these sorts you, of things. Well, yes, although I, I think that that would, but I'd also make a distinction between the way East Asia works and the way the global order works, right. because I think. You know, I think at the global order, you know, people sometimes worry about China's going to rule the world. That, that's not going to happen. No country's ever ruled the world, actually. And China's going to be very strong. It's going to be the strongest power in the world for most of this century. But it's not It's not going to be the only strong power in the world. There's always going to be lots of other powers, including, of course, the United States, which is not going anywhere, and India and Europe and Russia and so on. So I, th- I think we're going to see a global order and those global institutions that underpin it, like the UN and WTO and so forth, in which China plays a significantly bigger role. But in East Asia, in its own backyard, I think China's not going to want to play a significantly bigger role. It's not going to play the role like America does in the Western Hemisphere. So if the US can negotiate with China to persuade China to accept a continuing US role in the, in the in East Asia and the Western Pacific, that would be a very hard thing to do, better for us, Kind of, kind of vital for us, really. Well, nice if we can have it is what I'd say, because I, you know, in the end, we may end up having no choice but to accept China as the dominant power in East Asia and the Western Pacific. Now, that's a very gloomy thing to say, but if you just look at it, you know, historically, objectively, so to speak, like a Martian would look at it coming to Earth from, you know, without any of the background, and say, well, here's China, the world's biggest. Um, world's biggest economy, a uh, very strong uh, military, a uh, very strong economic and diplomatic weight. Why wouldn't you expect to be the dominant power in its own backyard, the way America's the dominant power in its own backyard? Well, that's a really good question because there was much positive talk about the Asian century not so long ago. 
And it always struck me as, as kind of odd not to accept the proposition that seemed to be, you know, embedded within that, that, yeah. of course, there would be an Asian hegemon. Yes. Well, it, I, I, th- th- that's, that's right. And a lot of the talk about the Asian century, both in Australia and in the US and elsewhere, was predicated on the idea that the Asian century would and could only happen if America remained the dominant power. I know, um, but, it, but, it, but it, so, so, go, so the American go, go century figure. gives way to the Asian century, yeah. but with the Americans, still but with in the charge. Americans still in charge, yeah. and that's because people, you know, I mean, I had a lot of conversations with Americans about this, you know, right through the last well <laughs> two decades, uh, and the the very strong conviction that um, that the 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 Asian century had to be an American century too, be- because only America could keep Asia peaceful and stable. And I, I mean, I I, I wrote a book uh, ten years ago uh, called The China Choice, which was about this idea of the U.S. and China sharing power. And I, as one does when one writes a book like that, I spend a lot of time wandering around the United States giving seminars to anyone who'd listen, uh, trying to you know flog the book and sell the idea. And what I kept on finding, and this was only in 2010, 2011, so China's growth rise was already a very big deal then. Um, <laughs> Uh, 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 Americans, even very sophisticated Americans who knew China very well, simply couldn't get their head around the idea that China might seriously challenge American leadership in Asia. And they had a whole, you know, it's not going to be strong enough economically, it won't be strong enough militarily, it won't be strong enough diplomatically, it won't really want to because it benefits from America's presence. And if it does challenge in the end, we'll just beat it and they'll back off. And I, I found it, you know, quite hard, I mean, actually impossible to sell people on the idea that America seriously had to start thinking of compromising with China. Was, was this an arrogance that was based on sort of old thinking about command economies and and, and, and the sort of part, part, dead end that no, they were in? I mean, because the other thing you'd yeah. often hear was that the, the, the military, the, the strategic power of China was so much less significant yeah. than that of the US. You know, the, yeah. the military no, might of the US is is vast. No, look, that's, that, that, that's right. There were, there, were, there were several components to it. One, one was a conviction that uh, China's economy couldn't keep growing. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, at, at any one time, and the same is true today, you, you can open a newspaper anywhere in the world and there'll be an article saying the Chinese economy is about to hit absolutely fundamental problems which are going to make the whole thing grind to a halt. And, of course, it's always possible. You know, they've done a totally remarkable thing for the last 30, 40 years, you know, decades, 10% per annum real growth year after year. There was always a chance the whole thing had come crashing down. My point to them was, yes, that's possible, but don't bet on it. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I might win Tats Lotto, but I'm not I'm, I'm not going to sacrifice my superannuation and rely on that as my salvation. <laughs> yeah, it's a dubious, and the fact uh, is that the, the, the argument is against it. The evidence is against it because the fact is the Chinese Communist Party have always faced significant barriers to keeping China's econo- economy growing. And they've always overcome them, and they've always been, you know, within all the doctrine and yeah. all the hardline evidence. There's a huge very, pragmatism there, been, and well, exa- that's exactly right, Mark. Pragmatism, and 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 a real capacity to formulate and implement policy. And you know, in Australia today, where we don't take that for granted anymore, no. seeing a country that can identify a problem, analyze how to deal with it, get a solution, and implement that solution across. A country of 1.4 billion people, it's a formidably effective system. So people assume that. People assume that the politics was very fragile. You know, a very dear friend of mine, David Shambar, wrote uh, uh, an, an essay a couple of years ago, which he called The Coming Collapse of China. Now, this is a bloke who really knows China well and very a lovely guy, very sophisticated. Uh, I, I, you know, regard him as a, as a dear friend and a very respected colleague. But I did write to him and say, mate. <laughs> I mean, maybe, but really, where's where's the evidence that this is going to happen now? And and so you know, across the U.S. system and and the Australian system, a very strong conviction that somehow this problem was going to go away because the Chinese would solve our problem for us by screwing it up. And all I can say is we can't rely on that. And and in fact, you know, the the, the only prudent basis for Australian and for that matter American policy. Is, is to adopt as a working hypothesis that the Chinese are going to make this work. And that means their economy will end up. Well, the Department of Foreign Affairs and the Foreign Affairs White Paper of 2017 had the estimate that by 2030, China's economy would be $42 trillion and America's economy would be 24. 42 to 24. Mm. 
Now, you know, that's not just China edging ahead of the no, United States. that's surging past. That's surging past, leaving it in the dust. And, well, that's an exaggeration. America is still going to be a very strong country with huge assets and, and, and a lot of power. It's just not going to be powerful enough to confront China in China's backyard. China's not going to become powerful enough to confront America in the Western Hemisphere, but, you know, they're going to be kind of equal powers. There's a, you know, Henry Kissinger, who's a f- complex figure, but quite a good analyst, foreshadowed precisely the situation in a book he wrote 30 years ago called Diplomacy, in which he said the thing about the United States and China is not that they're so different, but that they're so alike. <laughs> yes, I and, recall and, this now, yeah. you know, I, I just do think that the US, China's desire to, rep, to, to achieve in its own region what America's achieved in the Western Hemisphere and its capacity to, as America's capacity to marshal the vast resources of a continental-sized country with a huge population, with immense reservoirs of human talent. You know, they are, that, that, that they, are, <laughs> they are kind of similar. They're more similar than the United States and the Soviet Union were. And, and, yet, and, and yet the thesis is also that, you know, as you were saying at the start, superpowers or major powers yeah. have certain common characteristics. That's right, they, You know, exactly. they'll always behave in yeah. very self-interested ways. Yeah. And Paul Keating, for example, has been quite critical of, yes. of NATO, what he called nibbling at the pie crust by yeah. sort of eking away these uh, these peripheral yeah. states of the old Soviet Union because because of what, you know, the message that sends and the attitude it sets up in Moscow. For yeah, example. no, no, that is exactly right. And in fact, you know, although the cases are very different in some ways, there are important uh, analogies between what's happening between the US and China in East Asia and Russia and the United States in, in, in Europe. Um, you know, at the end of the Cold War, uh, there was this sort of ph- phenomenal burst of optimism that somehow America had, had had emerged as a unique power. People called it the New Rome, mm. you know, end of history idea that that, yeah. that America was simply going to be unchallengeably powerful. That the, the like, democracy, it, liberal exactly. democracy, had had, 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 had arrived, as and, the and that the whole world power. was going to accept America as a as a as a global primary power. America was going to rule the world, mm. and that the, all the other powers in the world, including China and Russia, would just say, "Fine, we'll live under that framework." And you know it was it, it was a it was a very attractive idea. It would have been great if it had proved to be true, but it just proved not to be right, and it proved not to be right in all kinds of ways. It didn't work out in the Middle East. We we, could, we know that, yeah. uh, but 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 it didn't work out in Asia because in the end China did want to establish its own sphere of influence, and it didn't work out in Eastern Europe because in the end, in the long run. Russia was never going to accept the way in which its eastern borders, its western borders, were redrawn at the end of the Cold War, and 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 for that to have been not that was bad enough by itself. But when NATO started moving into what had been not just Russian sphere of influence but Russian territory, yes. and yeah, you, know, you know the whole story about the Baltic states, for example. I'm not saying that there wasn't a, a great deal of, of of evil in the way in which uh, Russia and the Soviet Union absorbed the Baltic states, and indeed the, hunger within those populations for, oh, you know, yearning, for, 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 for and, yearning for freedom, yeah. absolutely. And I have a great deal of sympathy for that. But the fa- but the fact that you know this is power politics; it's a pretty brutal business, and uh, and so. Our capacity, you know, what our objective, the West's objective at the end of the Cold War should have been to reframe the international order in Europe in such a way that Russia would be content with it and that Russia would emerge as a stable, prosperous, effective country that was a happy member of that order. And would and see some dividends. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and, and we're going to feel, as all countries want to feel, secure and prosperous and respected. And, you know, to push NATO into Eastern Europe was uh, was 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 frankly destroying the chances of building an order in Europe that Russia could accept, and now we live with the consequences. Yeah. And likewise, as China's power grew, it was always, it seemed to me, going to be necessary to reframe the Asian order in ways that give China a status that it's willing to accept. Now, people resist that, and I'm, to a certain extent, I resist it, or at least I regret it. Because there's so many things about China that are so unattractive, fr- frankly frightening. But uh, but uh, the, the fact is, the alternative is this gets back to Thucydides. In the end, if you don't make those compromises, 
you end up being driven to war. Mm. And we should not underestimate the, the probability that that's what's happening at the moment. Well, I, I want to come to that war uh, in, in the, um, the possibility of it in the few moments we have left. But before we go to that, you mentioned the word respect before. Yep. And I'm interested in, uh, I suppose, Francis Adamson's comments at the press club, the, the outgoing head of DFAT. Mm. Uh, she made a very interesting observation about China where she said that it had a combination of great power and considerable insecurity and that this is a very dangerous combination. I want, it struck me as a clever observation. Mm. Just your thoughts on it. Yes. Look, I think there's something in it. I, I wouldn't have actually used the word insecurity. I'd have used the word dissatisfaction. Uh, I mean, China does feel, I'm sure, that the present order in Asia doesn't work for it, in East Asia, doesn't work for it. At least doesn't work for it now. But it seems to yearn for that kind of respect, you know, for that. For the, and that's what I think she meant by insecurity, yeah, this sort it, of sense oh. that it's, 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 a, this, it's like a huge teenager. Yeah. Well, I think we need to be a little bit cautious about that because I don't think China's – China certainly does want respect, but I don't think it's so very different in that way from every other country, including Australia. You know, every, every country and citizens in every country and not just democracies – want their country to be respected. Mm -hmm. And people are very sensitive to that. Australians are very sensitive to that. You know, when Scott Morrison stands up and says, you know, Australia absolutely must stand up to China because our sovereignty is at stake. Now, what they're saying is, you, know, you, can't, mm -hmm. you can't treat us like that. Well, I think the Chinese have a very strong version of that. And it's worth remembering or just trying to reflect on the personal experience of individual Chinese you know, if you're Chinese, you come at the question of China's status in the world today with four very big elements. One is, of course, a, a very intense sense of China's millennial history as a great power stretching back, you know, 4,000 years. And, and it's true in some ways. I mean, it's a complicated story, mm. but there's a lot in that. The second is a very strong sense of China's humiliation at the hands of the West uh, between the Opium Wars and 1949. And we might think, we in the West might think that they overplay that a bit. Maybe they do. But actually, the basic structure of the story is pretty right. Uh, you know, the Chinese, a great Chinese state, was taken apart, partly by what happened inside China, but to a significant degree because of the intrusion of the West into China and the weakening of that that, that, that caused. And the third thing is, of course, ph phenomenal sense of what China's achieved not so much since 1949, but since 1979. And, you know, Chinese of our generation have themselves lived through the transformation of China from an incredibly poor country to something, to the country we see today. And how, just, I mean, one just has to just acknowledge how proud they must feel of that. And then, of course, there's a sense of China's future. I don't think there's a lot of complacency in China, but there's a lot of confidence that they know how to make this work. And so with that sort of framing, do, do they want to be respected? You bet. I, I think we risk belittling that by calling it insecurity. Mm, okay. And I think, you know, we don't want to see, you know, we don't want to glamorise the Chinese. I hope, I we, hope I've quoted her correctly then. Because oh, no, I think no, she, no, yeah. no, she did. But I think I, I – because I, it's, it's, a, and it's a, a widely held view, there is a, a sort of a, a genuine point to it. That is, China feels that its prospects for future economic growth and its prospects for the kind of security it wants do depend on it being able to establish that sphere of influence. I mean, it's the point you made before. That's what mm. great powers do. They want yeah. to, you know, the Russian phrase is the near abroad. Mm. You yeah. know, they, they want to dominate the, the, the region around them. And actually, so do we. I mean, you know, we claim, in effect, a sphere of influence in the Southwest Pacific. Yeah. That's what the Pacific step up of Precisely, and we get pretty edgy when yeah, we, we see whenever, Chinese whenever, 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 money or whatever. But we, whenever anybody else comes in, yeah. I mean, when the Libyans started to penetrate in the 1980s or the Russians in mm. the 1980s or the Japanese, of course, in the, in the, in the 1930s and 40s or the, or the French in the 1870s yeah. or the Germans in the 1890s, yeah. you know, they, we've always been edgy about any potentially hostile major power intruding into the Southwest Pacific because we believe that's our backyard. And, you know, for, so we shouldn't be surprised, and I don't think we should be dismissive 
that China feels somewhat the same way, just as America feels its security and, and prosperity depends on dominating the Western Hemisphere. Now, again, saying it's understandable doesn't mean I like it. No. It doesn't even mean I think it's necessarily justifiable. But but it's but but it's real, and it's something we learn to need to learn to deal with. And so I think. Um, Although I think there is an element of insecurity and therefore an element of justification in Francis Adamson's formulation, I, I think that's—I don't think that's the best way to think of that phenomenon. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, it's been terrific talking to you. I've got one last thing, as I foreshadowed, to uh, to raise with you, and that is that is the sort of prickly yeah. question of a conflict were it to occur. Yeah. Because you've written about that as well recently, and you've said that it could have extraordinary dimensions. Mm. Really, mm. can you just uh, speak to that? Yeah, look, it's a it's a difficult issue in some ways because it's hard to talk about it. I think without rigorous, seeing really alarmist rigorously, yeah. without sounding a bit sort of Wagnerian and alarmist yeah. about yeah. it. But I do think, you know, and Thucydides is right to this extent that this the the, the contest between America and China in Asia today is a contest between the world's two most powerful states over which of them will dominate the most dynamic and important region in the world. So. The stakes don't get any bigger than this, and this is exactly the kind of issue that great powers do go to war over. And uh, and so I think the the chances of a U.S.-China war over the next few years are really quite high. And one of the things that makes it high is that is that unlike during the Cold War, but like for example the re- lead up to the First World War, uh, there's a real danger that both sides underestimate the resolve of the other. See, what the reason why the Cold War never turned into a hot war is that in the end, both America and Russia respected one another's spheres of influence. Okay, yeah. Stalin had Eastern Europe, Washington had Western Europe, and there was a big line down the middle. And that's why the Cuban Missile Crisis exactly. was the crisis that it was, exactly, because it because breached that. that. That's yeah. exactly right. That's exactly right, because that was one of the few times where Khrushchev, in that case, miscalculated but what they both learned from that is, whoa, we're not going to yeah. do that again. Yeah. You know, there's a big red line, yeah, and neither side of it's going to cross it, and neither side was going to cross it because both sides knew that the other side would fight a nuclear war if they did. The risk in Asia today is that the Chinese think they can push America out of Asia without a war because they think in the end the Americans will back off, and the Americans think they can deter the Chinese from doing that because they think the Chinese will back off. Because they think the Chinese will calculate that if America enters, it becomes a, you know, a right. too costly. It, it'll, 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 it becomes too co- costly. So you know, neither side wants to fight the other, but both sides hope they can achieve their objective without fighting the other because the other side will back off rather than fight. And that is exactly what happened in 1914. You know, when people look at the analogy with 1914, they often say, well, that's one of those Thucydides examples of a rising power meeting an established power. And it was that. But much more much more importantly, what happened in 1914 is that everyone underestimated everybody else's resolve. The, you know, the Austrians thought they could attack Serbia after the assassination of the Archduke without being attacked by the Russians because they thought the Russians would back off. And the Russians thought they could attack Austria without being attacked by Germany because they thought the Germans would back <laughs> off. And 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 the, the the Germans thought they could attack Russia without being attacked by France because they thought the French would back off, and none of them backed off. Yeah. And and the danger we have is exactly the same way as a crisis emerges, and it easily could. The Americans will think we must defend Taiwan, for example, and if we make it plain that we're going to defend Taiwan, the Chinese will back off. The American policy at the moment is strategic ambiguity on that. Question, it, it, it? it is, and that's dangerous. Yeah, because that well, it could, feeds that uncertainty. Because it feeds it? the uncertainty, it encourages the Chinese to think that if they attack Taiwan, the Americans will. It encourages the Chinese then, to think they they call it strategic amb- ambiguity because they want an out. Yeah, and therefore that that's they right. read that as code for well, when push comes to shove, they'll that's step right. backwards. Well, the original idea of strategic ambiguity was that it would that was that the the ambiguity would be resolved by in different ways on different sides of the strait. That the Taiwanese would believe the Americans probably wouldn't support them, mm. so they wouldn't do anything stupid, and the Chinese would think the, Amer- the Americans probably <laughs> would support them, so they wouldn't do anything stupid. The risk is. That it's that, that that's now precisely reversed, yes, yes. and the Chinese assume that America won't defend 
Taiwan, and I, I think there's a real risk of that. And and one of the risk, one of the reasons for that is that, you know, back when the present policy was first formulated by the United States, America was sure to win a maritime war in the Western Pacific against China. The Chinese Navy and Air Force weren't worth anything, and America's you know position was absolutely dominant. But in the last 25 years. In fact, since the Taiwan Straits crisis of 1996, the Chinese have done a very clever job of investing in exactly the right capabilities to win a war, or at least to stop America winning a war over Taiwan. And so the cost and risk to the United States of winning a war over Taiwan have gone up, and therefore the chances that they can persuade the Chinese they're willing to fight that war have gone down. Now, that's not to say the Americans won't fight it, but it means they won't win it. And uh, and it also means that the, the 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 war is more likely to break out because of the chances of miscalculation on yeah. both sides, and and that's you know it's hard to exaggerate the seriousness of that because we're not talking here about you know another bad day in the office like Iraq or Afghanistan. This would be well, first thing is it would be the first war between great powers since the Second World War. It will be, well, there was some skirmishes between the Chinese and the Russians and the Soviets in the late 60s, but it will be the first war between nuclear-armed states, except for a little skirmish between the Indians and the, and the, and the Pakistanis. Uh, it will be the first maritime war, large-scale maritime war, except for the Falklands crisis, since 1945. And, and neither side's going to win. So I think the chances of it turning into a full-scale regional war are very high, and the chance of escalating to a nuclear war are high. And the chance of it breaking out at overall is, is not low. I mean, if if it happens, if there's a war between America and China sometime, you know, this year or next year, no historian will look back and say that came out of a blue, clear blue sky. Good no, point. no. They'll yeah, they'll point. they'll go back and look at look at what's happened. And look at everything that Xi Jinping keeps saying exactly. about it and being look, part of the And look at plan. everything that the Americans keep saying yep. and saying Oh well, that that was going to happen. There was a in fair fact, bit of signalling there. They'll yeah. say it was inevitable. <laughs> it wasn't inevitable. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But but it, but it was very risky. And I've, I've I've often said that one of the big differences between my whole perspective on this issue and most other people's is that I I I, I rate the risk of a U.S.-China conflict higher than most other people. I rate the chances of that conflict escalating to a truly catastrophic war higher than most people. And I therefore think it's more urgent to do whatever we can, including making significant sacrifices, which is what we'd have to do in order to avoid that. Because when we sit here in Canberra or in Australia, or for that matter, in Washington, D.C., and say we'd like America to remain the dominant power in Asia, yeah, of course we could. But what are we prepared to pay for that? Mm. And the thing we've got to remember is that if we if we start a war over that, we, we won't win it. It's it's not going it, to. It's we we can't preserve U.S. primacy in Asia by starting a war with China because, by from the US, what does winning a war with China mean? Yeah, you know, when we we know what winning a war with Japan or with Germany meant. It meant that uh, you know we or our allies occupied the capitals of those countries, That's destroyed right. their system of government, replaced it with one we like better, achieved total surrender. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, whatever else happened, the Royal Australian Regiment is never going to march across <laughs> Tiananmen Square, no. and neither is the 101st Airborne. Yeah. Um, any more than the PLA is going to march down the main street of Washington, march mm-hmm. down the, the mall in, in Washington, D.C. I hope they don't march down Anzac Parade. Mm-hmm. If we think there's a military solution to this, if we think we can either deter China from challenging the United States or fight a successful war to defeat that challenge, we're kidding ourselves, particularly if it's a nuclear war. Now, an earlier generation of strategists, the the, the the men and women who sat down after the Second World War and asked themselves what does the advent of nuclear weapons mean, understood that this changed everything. And one of the things that worries me is that in the decades since the end of the Cold War, we've forgotten about how important nuclear weapons are in these calculations. Yeah. And we've started again to think that we can just push one another around the way it's they try to like do in It's almost like there's an assumption that they're so horrific that they won't be used. That's right. You know, it's and, like they, they've that, stopped exa- being as dangerous as they used to be that, because we're smarter now or that's something. That's exactly right. And what they forget is that although the tensions of the Cold War disappeared, the weapons didn't. Yeah, absolutely. There's still right now as we speak, there's submarines at sea mm. with with missiles, with multiple warheads. Yeah. The Chinese have now got submarines at sea. There are there are there are intercontinental ballistic missiles in their silos ready to go. You know, it's as dangerous as it was during the Cold War. And with much less caution 
I mean, people talk at, at length about the idea of a US-China war without ever mentioning they're both nuclear armed yeah, states. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, for someone of my generation, I, you know, my first decade in this business was the last decade of the Cold War where we thought about nuclear weapons all the time. And I keep on wanting to sort of jump up and shake people and say, remember what nuclear war means. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very good point. It's a very sobering uh, uh, warning to end on. Hugh White, it's been, uh, I can't think of a more uh, interesting and rewarding conversation to have. So I really enjoyed it. Uh, and uh, I, I'm sure people listening will have the same view, uh, even if uh, we've ended on that very, <laughs> I guess, cause, you know, um, stirring sort of note. Well, look, thanks very much, Mark. I really enjoyed the opportunity. And, uh, you know, you don't, uh, don't get me into the studio if you want to end on a jolly note. <laughs> What was your most recent book? Is you've written many? Oh, my most recent book is was called How to Defend Australia, and it argues that in the light of all the things we've been talking about, Australia better work out how to survive in an Asia in which the United States isn't the dominant power, and China is, and India as well, of course, in its own way, and we therefore better work out how we can defend Australia independently from a major Asian power. I think we can do it, but it costs a lot of money. Yeah, and we have to think more deeply about it than perhaps we are. Absolutely. White, thanks so much for being on Democracy Sausage again. Uh, that's all we have time for today. Uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again next week. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.